A number of people who listen to this show want to be better writers since I've received a few requests for this topic. Today, how to improve your grammar and usage so you can communicate effectively in writing. And who better to teach us than Grammar Girl? This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 108. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help people be better leaders through improved communications, human relations, and personal productivity, the people side of business, and the ability to influence people more effectively so that we can lead and manage and do all the things that we need to do to be able to interact with others well. And one of those things we don't talk about a lot in business and organizational world is how to effectively write, have good grammar, good usage. But it's something that comes up actually quite a bit when we see something that's not working with people's grammar, or maybe even our own grammar or usage. And I received a few uh, comments on this in the last Oh, a few weeks from community members, and I thought it'd be great to bring in someone who knows this better than anyone. And so I'll introduce Grammar Girl here in just a moment. Um, but before I do that, I do want to mention, stick around f- before for the end of the interview, because I have two announcements, one of them about the Manhattan Breakfast Meetup that's coming up in about a week and a half, a chance to meet me and dialogue and meet in person some of the other Coaching for Leaders community members in the New York area coming up on Saturday, October 12th. And so if you're in the the area, uh, stick around for that announcement. And I also have an announcement about a new project I'm working on and looking for some help and some uh, feedback from the Coaching for Leaders community. And so stick around for information on that too. I am pleased to welcome my guest this week, Mignon Fogarty. She is better known as Grammar Girl, and she produces and hosts the Grammar Girl podcast. She's also the founder of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, which has a whole bunch of shows which are really valuable. And if you've been on iTunes before any other podcast directory, you've inevitably seen those shows listed Mignon, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Dave, thank you for inviting me. Well, I am uh, excited to talk with you because the topic of grammar has come up in emails and uh, several times with our community over the last few weeks and good writing skills and good grammar. And so uh, I thought, you know, who better to talk to than Grammar Girl? And uh, I just uh, wanted to reach out and see if we could learn something from you about grammar and just some general things that we should keep in mind when communicating. And I I know this is kind of an interesting thing because grammar isn't a a topic that people normally get super excited about. So I was wondering if we could start first by just defining what grammar is and why it's important. Sure. Well, it's kind of funny because my dirty little secret is that what I do most of the time isn't grammar. Um, grammar is, you know, about parts of speech and subject verb agreement and things like that. And the kind of things that people ask me about and that my podcast is about tend to be things that the experts call usage. Oh. Or sometimes punctuation. So usage is things like, well, do I use affect or effect or lay versus lie? And you know, punctuation, of course, is where do I put that semicolon again? <laughs> so those things are are they are important because people judge you by how you write. Um, you know, it used to be dress for success, but now we're interacting with people online so much more often that 
our writing is really the, one of the first things that people see about us. So, you know, they look at your writing and decide whether you're smart or professional or any number of things, the way they used to look at how you dress and make those same decisions. You know, it, it's interesting you say that because that's exactly what a couple of the emails I've received recently is people saying, you know, I've I received some of these emails and I realized that what you write and how you put together what you're going to say really does make a difference. And I'm just thinking back to, um, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, my wife had received a communication from someone who's um, potentially interested in doing some work with us. And it was kind of all the, just the writing kind of looked like it was more of like a text message. And it, it really does say something about that person, even though I believe they're probably pretty well qualified to do the work. It really put that negative first impression in both of our minds right away about this person. Right. And people get used to writing in that informal style because, you know, we're online so much chatting with friends on Facebook or text messaging. And you do get used to writing in that informal style, which is actually completely appropriate for those environments. But when you switch back to a professional environment, you have to remember to switch back to a professional writing tone, too. And, uh, you know, I often see it, too, that people don't make that switch when they should. Mm. And well, this is is leads to a topic that is really top of mind for a lot of people who are in this listening community, which is email, because I know a lot of us spend a lot of time on email, especially in professional environments. What are some best practices you know we could all implement on email that would improve readability, if not necessarily always being perfect on our grammar or usage? Well, you know, one thing that I find in my writing is when I I, if I take the time to go back and just reread something before I send it, I'll find that I've left out a word here or there, or I have a typo. I have, you know, if where it should be it, you know, so it spell check doesn't catch it. Um, you know, I think breaking up long paragraphs, that's one thing in email people do not want to read, um, really long things. In fact, there's a, I think it's a text messaging abbreviation, uh, TL semicolon DR, and it stands for too long, didn't read. <laughs> so, um, I have seen that. You know, break things up into small paragraphs, you know, much more so than you were taught in school. You know, you were taught that every paragraph should have a topic sentence and, you know, multiple points. And um, in email, I, you know, find that I break things up a lot more than, uh, than, technically is necessary just to improve readability. The other thing that I feel really strongly about in email is making sure your subject lines are meaningful. Um, people have, you know, I, I, I'm sure everyone else like me gets, you know, a hundred messages a day and we're scanning the subject lines trying to find a message. So, you know, when a conversation drifts into a completely different subject, at some point I will try to remember to change the subject line so that it's relevant to the current um, conversation to make things easier to find in the future if I'm scanning. Oh, interesting. And is there any type of advice you give people as far as content of subject lines or how to make those readable, readable legible so people really do get their eyes on it quickly? Hmm. I don't have any specific advice, but I always do try to include a keyword that I know I might use if I searched later for um, that message. So, you know, more than just, uh, you know, notes from the meeting, I instead of that, I might say notes from the coaching for leaders meeting or uh, notes from the, you know, school 
potluck meeting, you know, some word that if I were to go back and search for that message later, a word I would use to search. And you mentioned something also a moment ago that I thought we we could go back to here quickly of of just reading through something before we send it. I found that I'm vastly different if I read through it versus if I say it out loud, if it's something that's really important. Have have other people found that too, Mignon, or does that is that something that you found is helpful for people? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, one man told me a long time ago that in his office, he'll he's embarrassed to read his stuff out loud, but he finds that it's so much more useful um, for proofreading that he'll pick up the phone and pretend that he's talking on the phone to someone while he's reading um, something out loud. That's so that awesome. if his coworkers walk by, he doesn't look like he's just reading out loud. He looks like he's talking on the phone to someone. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I, I catch things that I never see if I just scan it and don't say anything. But if I read it out loud, I all of a sudden see tons of stuff that I never saw the first time. It's amazing how different it is. Right. Well, my podcast is scripted because you know it's Grammar Girl, so people expect the language to be perfect. So I can't do it just off the cuff. So I have yeah. a script for every one of my shows. And when I go to actually read the script, it's a form of proofreading. And every time I take a pencil in with me to the, the little place where I record, and I always circle things that I find as I'm reading it out loud and then go back and fix the script that goes online afterward. Fascinating. Awesome. Okay. So let's look at a couple of your popular tips that will help out our audience. And I thought uh, this is one I know I still mess with, (laughs) Mignon, so you can help me on this. And I know many other people too, is affect versus effect. How do we get (laughs) distinct between these two words? It's a tough one. Many, many people struggle with that, knowing which word to use. Um, And it's actually, I have a good little memory trick. So um, I'm a big fan of mnemonics. So affect with an A is usually a verb and effect with an E is usually a noun. So if you think affect, verb, effect, noun, that has the letters A-V-E-N. And so to remember that, I think of a big black raven sitting in a tree. And I think of that raven, and because the word raven has A-V-E-N in it, then I can remember affect, verb, effect, noun. Oh, okay. And just, you know, then you just look at your sentence and you're trying to figure out whether it's a verb or a noun, and that's usually pretty easy. So what would be an example of a, let's say, like a verb sentence for those who haven't done this in a while of thinking through different verbs and nouns um, where we would use affect? So uh, the weather affected fourth quarter sales. So, you know, the weather is the noun and it's affecting something. So affect is the verb. So you want the letter, the word that starts with A. So the weather affected fourth quarter sales. So affect, verb, effect, noun, affect with an A is the verb. And so the weather affected fourth quarter sales. And then the other little trick, if you're having trouble figuring out a noun from a verb, um, effect, the one with an E that's usually a noun, usually you can put the or an before a a noun. So um, you could say, uh, the effects were amazing. You know, if you're talking about fireworks or something, you could say the effects were amazing. And because you can put the word the in front of it, then you know the word that follows is a noun. And because it's a noun, you've got your A-V-E-N mnemonic, you know that it should start with an E. Ah, I get it. So when you say a verb versus noun, it's how the effect or effect word is being used itself. Right. Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I love the Raven image too. That totally is going to stick with me to utilize. So, So if we're using it as a verb, 
affect or affect. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that they're usually pronounced the same, and that's why people are confused them. But when you're explaining the difference, I usually emphasize the spelling difference. So, so affect versus effect. But when you're just talking in a normal sentence, you usually pronounce them nearly identically, which is why everyone is confused. Okay, great. So I'm going to see if I can find a raven and put it into the show notes to remind people about this. That's perfect. Okay, good. So um, one of the other things I know you mentioned that's a myth for a lot of us is that a run-on sentence is just a really long sentence, but that's not really the whole story. Right. I mean, lots and lots of people think a run-on sentence is just a sentence that goes on forever, but a run-on sentence is actually a sentence that doesn't have the proper punctuation. So it can be really short. Um, If, say, for example, uh, I am a woman, I am a podcaster, and if you had all those words together with no punctuation, that's a run-on sentence, even though it's, I am a woman, I am a podcast, seven, eight words. Yeah. So it's very short, but it needs a semicolon in the middle to separate those two clauses. Um, so, so a run-on sentence. And the reason run-on sentences matter is because your brain is used to having that punctuation to parse the different meanings. And so in your brain, it all sort of runs together and you're not sure where you're supposed to mentally separate the, the statements. So, you know, punctuation, it has its purposes. It's very useful for giving the reader cues about what goes together and what doesn't and where you pause and things like that. So, um, you know, it's important to have that punctuation in your sentence. And I'm guessing the real implication for us here is, and I know having been on the receiving end, and I'm sure many of us have been, is that if we are using run-on sentences, is the reader is used to being able to separate with punctuation, and all of a sudden, we be, make it just so much more difficult for our audience to read when we're using run-on sentences. Right, yeah. Even if they're short, they can be harder to read. Got it. And so anything we can do to keep people from stopping or slowing down when they're reading what we're sending them is going to be more likely to get our message across. Right. You say irregardless is not a word, and I know I've used irregardless before, so what? Uh, why, is, why is this a, a, a word we shouldn't use? Right. Well, it's it's very controversial. So, um, Ooh, I, actually, love, I love controversy. Yeah. Let's no, do I, it. So, on um, I have this article about grammar myths, and I some someone posted it to Reddit, and I I said it's a myth that irregardless is not a word. So, irregardless is a word, and uh, I got flamed to kingdom come. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I have never taken so much heat. But ir- what I said in the small print that nobody read is that irregardless is a word, but it's a word you shouldn't use if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to look like a smart person, because irregardless is essentially a mistake that's become so common that everyone knows what it means. And it's in dictionaries, but it's marked as non-standard. So in, in, it, 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 etymologically, it's a little bit different, but you can imagine, simplistically, it's like ain't. Right when you say "ain't," everyone knows what you mean, but that doesn't mean you should include it in your business emails or your PowerPoint presentations. So, you know, people think that irregardless comes from confusion over regardless and irrespective, and people have sort of merged those two together in their mind and created this new word. So it's a word because when you use it, people know what it means, and it's used often enough that it's made it into dictionaries. But it's like ain't. It's a non-standard word that you shouldn't use when, you know, in your 
professional communications. So instead, we would say something like, regardless? Right. Yeah, exactly. Just simpler. Yeah, regardless. Good to know. You know, regardless of what the people on Reddit think, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, and this this raises an interesting point is that just because everyone else is doing it uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's the right choice. And I'm really interested by this, how things end up in a dictionary. So it, it ends up in a dictionary, not necessarily because it's the proper or correct usage of a term, but just because it has been popularized. Am I accurate on that? Right. And this is also a common misconception. Um, And some people might remember, oh, maybe a month ago, there was a big kerfuffle online about uh, literally being in the dictionary with the definition, you know, for emphasis or figuratively. And everyone lost their minds because literally made it into the dictionary, but it had been in there for hundreds of years. Um, Dictionaries report how language is used. So if, you know, you are reading a blog post, for example, and someone uses irregardless, let's say, you want to look it up and know what it means. And that's what dictionaries are for. Whether a word is used right or wrong, it's used. The books that people that make rulings about what's right or wrong are called style guides or usage guides. And they're the books that that attempt to make determinations about good words and bad words and words you should use. So what most people think dictionaries are for, actually, that's what usage guides and style guides are for. Ah, got it. Okay, good. And that's perfect, because I'm going to ask you about that here in a little bit, because I know probably our audience is wondering about, you know, what are some of the other resources and books that we could use beyond just the dictionary and maybe grammar check and something like that. So so that's great. Let's do one more before we jump to some of, some of those resources. You say passive voice isn't always wrong, and I know um, we hear that a lot. Tell me what you mean about that. You know, maybe what is passive voice first of all, and then why? What's the controversy around passive voice? Sure, passive voice is when you don't name the the person who's or entity who's doing something. So the classic example is bombs were dropped or mistakes were made. Well, you're intentionally leaving out who dropped the bombs or who made the mistakes. And that's passive voice when you don't name the actor. And you can often recognize a passive voice sentence because you can usually add by blank at the end. (laughs) So Mm. mistakes were made by the government. You know, like if you can add that by the government or by me at the end, then you know you have a passive voice sentence most of the time. Now, in most cases, passive voice is weaker than, you know, something where you name the actor. And But there are instances where it's very useful. Like a lot of times in um, crime reporting, you don't know who did something. So it's, it's a much more um, succinct way to write your sentence is to leave it out. You could just say, the cookies were stolen, you know, by an unknown thief. You know, that that by an unknown thief is, doesn't really add anything. It's sort of unnecessary. And maybe the the key point of your mystery novel is that, you know, it was cookies that were stolen. And, and that it's important that it's cookies. So you want to put that first in your sentence because that's where, you know, people's attention is most likely to be focused. So, you know, sometimes... Uh, passive voice is the best choice. And, you know, there are a lot of rules out there that say never use passive voice. And, you know, typically never, never is always wrong. There's a (laughs) a set of absolutes that shouldn't go together. But (laughs) Well, this is fascinating because one of the things that we've talked about on the show before is some leaders um, 
inclination, I think a lot of us have an inclination to do this, of rather than having a direct conversation with one person, of sort of saying to a team of people, well, some mistakes were made, and really trying to give feedback to one person by communicating that to 20 different people. So that's actually a really interesting example that I think a lot of leaders fall into too, as far as maybe an overuse of passive voice. And when there is truly an, an, an issue with one person to you know, not necessarily send an email, but to have a conversation directly with that one person versus trying to handle it in more of a generic way. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great example. That'd be a way of not casting blame on one individual, you know, in a group setting. It might be better to address it individually, but if you had to address it in a group setting and you didn't want to make someone, you know, single someone out, passive voice again would be a, a good one way to do that. So speaking of uh, speaking of going after people, you say your arch enemy is the evil grammar maven who inspires terror in the untrained and is neither friendly nor helpful. So tell me more about this arch enemy of yours, the grammar maven, and uh, and why he's an enemy. Yes, dun dun dun, the dun, evil dun, grammar dun. maven. Um, well, especially when I got I started Grammar Girl about seven years ago, and especially when I started, it seemed as if there were uh, there were a lot of people out there giving advice. But the advice came from people who sounded very superior and snobby and snotty about it. Um, you know, so, and, and what I wanted, I wanted to help people. So, you know, my goal is not to make myself feel better than you because I know the difference between your with and without an apostrophe. My goal is to help you understand the difference between your with and without an apostrophe. And in my experience, people are much more receptive to... Um, suggestions and much more comfortable learning when they're not terrified or they're not, you know, focusing on how, stu- how you know, fe- that they feel stupid because someone is telling them that they've done something wrong. And, you know, a lot of people tell me too in school, you know, they'd be writing, they'd turn in a paper and they'd get it back with, you know, red marks all over it. And it made them anxious about writing for the rest of their lives. Mm. So grammar and writing is something that a lot of people are very intimidated and insecure about because of these experiences early on. And so I think it's really important to be friendly and helpful and supportive when you're giving grammar advice. And, you know, really... I, I don't believe any good comes from, you know, going up to a stranger on the street and telling them their T-shirt has a typo or, you know, something like that. You know, going into a a Chinese food restaurant and correcting their menu. It just I just don't think any good comes of that. I think it's much more important to focus on helping people when they're receptive to being helped, helping people when they ask for help as opposed to attacking people who have made errors. You know, th- this is great because I am just thinking, you know, what you've said and how you approach this and how uh, popular you've become um, and your platform has become because of your approach to that. And as you mentioned, there are many people out there who kind of take that attack mentality approach to grammar. And I couldn't name any of them who they are. And yet I mentioned to a couple of people that I was interviewing Grammar Girl in the last few days, and everyone knew who you were, even if they hadn't listened to your show. So I think it's a great reminder for me and for all of us that that approaching of approaching something from not the lens of criticism and I'm right and I'm smarter than you are, but approaching it from a how can I help you is really a great way to build relationships with people and for people to want to engage with you. And I think you've done a great job of really setting that as a value and with the work you're doing. 
Thank you. And it's one thing, you know, I think it's it's very different from reality TV, too. You know, also in the seven years since I've been doing this, you know, reality TV has really grown as a genre. And that's all about conflict and, you know, people putting each other, you know, you think about, you know, I don't know, like American Idol and they get a lot of attention for being mean to, to people. And, and so I think it's become even more of a force in the world. And there's a lot of modeling of that sort of negative feedback, negative interactions. And so I, so I just think it's extra important to, you know, continue to focus on, you know, although it might be very entertaining when you're watching it, that the best way to actually help people and teach them is to be um, positive and supportive. So let's chat about tools because you mentioned style guides earlier, and I know you have tons of ideas on things that we could do to improve our grammar and our usage. And so I'm wondering, like, uh, as far as style guides, books, resources, services, uh, grammar check, what are what are things you suggest to people to do and to try out? Right. I mean, one of the things that surprises me most is how often people ask me questions that could be answered by them simply looking it up in any online dictionary. So, you know, dictionary.com and merriamwebster.com both have full dictionaries online and you can find the answer to most of your language questions by going to those sites and looking up the word. Like it's very fast. So, you know, those are probably the two resources that I use most frequently. You know, people will ask me, "Oh, what's the plural of fleece?" or um you know, what's the proper spelling of this word, you know, some word or another. And, you know, usually you can find the answer just by looking it up in one of those online dictionaries. Sure. Um, for more complicated questions. Hey, let I me re- ask you a quick thing on that before uh, you go on. Do you, I know with the dictionary, you said that that's a, um, that's a use as far as just what's popular being used. Is there a way to distinguish between what words may not be like irregardless, for example, that's in the dictionary, what words would be good words to use and proper words to use versus one that's just gotten in there because it's popular? Yeah, usually, um, I believe dictionary.com has usage notes in their dictionary. So if um, you go there, let's just go there now and see what it looks like for irregardless, because I am willing to bet it tells you something about it not being good. So yes, if I go to dictionary.com, it has non-standard right next to irregardless. And then there's a little usage note that says uh, considered non-standard because of the two negative elements, ir and less. It was probably formed on the analogy of such words as irrespective, irrelevant, and irreparable. Um, Yeah, so I mean, there are, so these online dictionaries, they actually do usually include notes if a word is, um, you know, controversial in some way. So going back to what we all learned in kindergarten, hopefully, which is actually read. <laughs> Things right, when we look, yeah. look them up and get some advice. But I mean, something. look how fast it t- you know, that was. It took me, yeah. what, five seconds to find that. So it's, it's right. It is at your fingertips, whether you're at your computer or on a smartphone. Okay, good. So dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster's uh, is one I've used a lot, and that's a great site too. So, okay, those are good. What else uh, should we be thinking about as far as resources? Well, if you're more of a serious writer, um, I really like Garner's Modern American Usage, which is a big, thick book. It has about 800 pages, so it's 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 huge. But it will answer almost any language question you have. It's um it's a fabulous. If you have to buy one resource, that's the one I recommend. And then if you write, um, you know, often um, businesses and publications will have a style guide 
that designated that they follow, whether it's Chicago Manual of Style or the AP Style Book for newspapers and magazines or the APA Style. You know, there are all sorts of style guides for specific purposes. And so you should definitely find out if your organization has a designated style guide and, you know, definitely get that and have that be your first source where you look things up. Cool. Uh, yeah. And then another uh, resource a lot of people don't know about, but that I use all the time is um, Google Ngram search. So it's N-G-R-A-M. It's a linguistics term. It doesn't really matter what it means. Okay. But um, what it does is it lets you search Google Books. So Google Books, you know, they've scanned millions of books and books are usually edited. So they have gone through an editing process. So if you're wondering say, whether a certain idiom is a certain way. Um, let's say you're trying to remember um, whether it's uh, toe the line, T-O-E, or toe the line, T-O-W. You can put those two phrases in a Google Ngram search, and it will show you how often they're both used, and it will show you which one is more common. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, I use that all the time for... Um, you know, looking up very specific questions that people have asked me about set phrases or which preposition, you know, are we, I mean, this wouldn't be one, but like, are you, are we in a restaurant or at a restaurant? Well, you know, they're both, they're interchangeable, but those kind of preposition questions, um, you can find how, how they've been written in published books. And then that gives you an idea of what professional editors tend to think is, is right. Oh, this is fascinating because it's. I'm just looking online here, and it's got a graph show. It shows you the percentage usage of the phrase. It, that's really, really neat. I had no idea this was there. Yeah, it's fabulous, and linguists are doing all sorts of interesting research with it. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's great. So, um, now let's say someone really wants to get better at their grammar, maybe just beyond a reference tool, but really wants to proactively do do something differently. And of course, my first suggestion would be they should listen to your show because you have a great show and it's it's really quick. It's, you know, I, usually you're about 10, 11, 12 minutes or so, aren't, aren't you? Right. I try to keep it under 10, but sometimes it goes long. Oh, that, that's great. So it's real. It's a great uh, addition to your listening on podcasts. So definitely do that. Um, are there other things that people can do that would be good proactive steps, Mignon, that would, would drive their, their, their capacity over time to have good usage and have good language? You know, I think the thing that inspired me when I was young was discovering popular books on language. So not the usage, not the Chicago Manual of Style and the AP, but, um, you know, like I remember one of the first books I read was Woe Is I by Patricia O'Connor. And mm. it was sort of a fun jaunt through language. And, um, you know, it eats, shoots, and leaves. You know, today I don't like that as much because it does have that snotty tone. But, you know, it was when I was in college, it was a delightful, entertaining read about language. And it did touch on the usage rules. Um, Bill Walsh has a couple books out, The Elephants of Style. Um, yes, I could care less. There are a lot, you know, and, and of course now I have my own books out. I have the grammar devotional and grammar girls, quick and dirty tips for better writing. Oh, cool. So yeah. So there are a, a whole bunch of these sort of, they're called trade paperbacks. They're, you know, books for the general public about language and trying to approach it in a fun, entertaining way so that it's a book you'd actually want to read. And I think picking up some of those books 
and reading them for entertainment can help you develop more of an interest in, in language over time. And, and you know, some rules will seep into your head along the way. Speaking of other resources, I know that I was on your website and I saw you have an iPad game out as well, too. Can you say something about that? And uh, is that something that people could use that would be helpful from a grammar standpoint? I do. And I'm so excited about it. It's a new iPad game called Grammar Pop. And it, it actually is grammar. Like Unlike most things I do, it's matching words with their part of speech. So before we were talking about nouns and verbs. Well, in Grammar Pop, you get a sentence and each word is in a cloud and you match it with its part of speech to pop the cloud. So I developed it. It was a word game that I wanted to play myself that didn't exist. And so I created it. And then we've also in in the last couple of weeks we've seen a really big um, uptick in academic purchases. So I'm learning schools are actually buying it for their students to use as as a classroom exercise. So I think it's a fun word game, but uh, schools are also finding it that it's very educational. So that's that's really rewarding. It's called Grammar Pop. It's just out for the iPad now, but I'm working on the iPhone and Android versions and hope to have them out soon. Cool. So pop as in P O P, pop the balloon. Right, yeah, you're popping the clouds with the words. So, oh, yeah, awesome. pop. Very, very cool. That's great. You know, it's uh, it, it, it isn't it amazing, too, that the best projects end up being something that we often build for ourselves or that, you, you know, we want ourselves and, and like you develop this for yourself and then all of a sudden it becomes something that's really valuable to other people. Right, yeah. I mean, Grammar Girl, the podcast was sort of the same way. It was something that I would have wanted to listen to myself and then other people liked it, too. Oh, that's great. I started the show the same way too. I was like, you know, there's not a lot of other leadership shows out there that have a weekly inspirational message. So that's interesting how things yeah. start off like that. You know, um, you've, I want to ask you a little bit about your network because you've built a really successful show. You've gotten a ton of visibility and a lot of people know uh, Grammar Girl. Now you have an entire network of quick and dirty tips, podcasts. I'm just really curious What's something that you've had to learn about yourself in order to make these projects really successful? I think what I had to learn about myself is that I couldn't do everything myself. Um, when the network, and when Grammar Girl started growing and the network started growing, it was just impossible for me to do everything myself. And I was never a good de- delegator. You know, I'm, I, people disappoint me. You know, I disappoint me. I can barely put up with my own failures, let alone everyone else's. So, so uh, learning to delegate and not be so outraged when everything didn't go right was really hard, but really necessary um, for letting the business grow because one person just can't do everything. Uh, what got you over the hump? Was there something that you did or, or told yourself or just forced yourself maybe initially to do that, that got you starting to do some of that delegation? I mean, I, I was working 80 hours a week by the time, oh, wow. um, you know, a partnership came along. I was like, yes, anyone help. <laughs> oh, so it was more of like a, a forced, <laughs> forced choice. Of yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a tidal wave that took over my life. Um, wow. you know, grammar girl became popular really, really fast. And I had a, another full-time job. I was a full, I freelanced, but I had, you know, a full schedule of projects that I was already working on. And, and suddenly I was in charge of, you know, a very popular podcast that was getting, you know, a ton of email and, you know, offers and partnership, you know, book offers. I mean, it was just overwhelming. Wow. Wow. 
Wow, that's exciting. You know, it's a, it's just a great uh, it's a great story, and it's a great reminder for all of us that if we approach something to really add value to people's lives, whether it's running a podcast like you and I do, or whether it is just um, you know leading people and looking for ways to add value to their work and to help grow their careers, uh, you know, it's just some amazing things come out of that in the long term, which is really exciting. Hey, uh, tell people how to get uh, on to your show and connect with you and get the iPad app and anything else that's uh, that's that folks should know about. Sure. Well, you know, I am better known as Grammar Girl. So I'm Grammar Girl on Twitter and Facebook. And if you search iTunes for Grammar Girl, my podcast will come up. And I believe um, the app will come up too. It's Grammar Pop. Um, There's the second, there's a podcast app. And some people have been confused and bought that instead. But the game is called Grammar Pop. So look for that. And my website is quickanddirtytips.com. So I that's the home for Grammar Girl and all the other 14 shows in the network. So um, that is where you will find me. Cool. And for the game, uh, for those of us who have kids, is it something that has a particular age range that would be helpful for kids too? Or? It's definitely child safe, uh, family friendly. I have heard of kids as young as second grade using it, but I've also heard of high school kids and adults using it. So the early levels have just three word sentences. So like the dog ran and three parts of speech. So it starts out very easy. So little kids can use it, but by the end, it has 12 word sentences and 11 different parts of speech. So it goes from the very easy to the very difficult. So, you know, I'm finding that, you know, parents are maybe playing it with their kids in the early levels and then playing it on their own for fun at the higher levels. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here, Mignon. I'm so excited to have uh, get to talk with you and see all the cool things you're doing to empower people with good language usage. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on, Dave. Mignon Fogarty is Grammar Girl. Check out her podcast and check out the Grammar Pop game on the iPad. You'll be doing better on your grammar and your usage too. I hope you'll join the conversation after today's show online, and you can get to that at coachingforleaders.com slash 108. I'm going to put links to all of the books and resources that Mignon mentioned on the show there, so that especially this week, a great resource to check out so that you can uh, look into some of those resources that she had mentioned. Uh, by the way, I also, uh, since we're recording this interview, have purchased the Grammar Pop game on my iPad, and it's tons of fun, so I encourage you to check it out. Just got updated for iOS 7 for those of you who are iPad users, so check that out and uh, enjoy the conversation online. You can also always call feedback to me at 949-38-LEARN, or you can reach me by email at feedback at coachingforleaders.com. Uh, you're also welcome to reach, uh, leave an audio message by your computer. And if you want to do that, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash speak. And if you've got a built-in microphone on your computer, it will uh, allow you to leave a message right there. So, hey, a few announcements I mentioned at the beginning of the show. I am going to be in Manhattan in about a week and a half, and I am hosting the very first Coaching for Leaders breakfast meetup. So if you are in the Manhattan area and would like to meet me and sit down uh, for breakfast uh, with me and some of the other Coaching for Leaders community members that are in the Manhattan area, I would love to connect with you. It's going to be Saturday, October 12th, 2013 at 9 a.m., 
And the location is going to be Cafe Metro on Lexington Avenue and 46th Street in Manhattan. If you'd like more details about the event, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash meetup. So that's M-E-E-T-U-P. Just go there. And if you plan to attend, do let me know so I can be sure to look for you that morning. And you can either email me at feedback at coachingforleaders.com or just go to that link. Again, it's coachingforleaders.com slash meetup. Leave a comment, and that way I will know that you are planning to attend. And uh, if you're out in Manhattan area, I would love to connect with you. So if you're around that uh, morning, come on by and uh, love to meet you in person and introduce you to some of the other Coaching for Leaders community members as well. Hey, one final announcement this week. I am beginning work on a project that will eventually be a project for the Coaching for Leaders community, and I am looking for some help from about 10 people to assist me with a little R&D work uh, in in the preparation for beginning to launch this project, I'm beginning active development on it, and it will be something I'll roll out eventually to the Coaching for Leaders community, probably in the next six months or so. I'm not prepared to say a lot more about it yet because it's still in its infancy stages, and uh, depending on how the R&D goes, uh, it may go a couple of different ways. But I would love to talk with you if you uh, if two things are true for you. So if you're a listener to this show and you are a manager in your organization, and you've been a manager for less than two years, and you work for a company or organization that employs more than 25 people. So if that's you, again, you've been a manager for less than two years, and you work for a company or organization that has more than 25 people, I would love to chat with you and get connected with you for a few minutes. Uh, And probably this would look like just a brief phone call or maybe a chat over Skype sometime in the coming weeks. And um, what I'm going to do is ask a few questions just about your experience in your organization right now. Uh, what I'd really like to find out from you is what things are, um, you know, what things are obstacles you're running into as a new manager, and what your organization is supporting you on, and what are they not supporting you on because that's going to assist me in helping put together this project. And uh, I will, of course, be very grateful for your assistance, but uh, I will also find a way to thank you more formally once the project launches, probably in early 2014. If that is of interest to you and you would like to help, I would love to chat with you. Send me an email to feedback at coachingforleaders.com, and in the subject line, just put R&D. So again, Uh, feedback at coachingforleaders.com, subject line R&D. And of course, I'll share more details with those of you that I do chat with. And so that way you'll know what's up. And I'd love to have you as part of this project on the front end, and you will inevitably help shape it and turn it into something that will be really great for Uh, the whole community, hopefully, here down the road. So thanks in advance. Hey, just a reminder, I do publish an article each week that will give you a booster shot between shows on how to lead better by giving you some actionable advice to improve your communications, human relations, or personal productivity. And if you'd like to get that, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Plus, you'll get access to my video overview and downloadable guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. I also want to say a very special thank you this week to Jim Pepe. Jim, thank you so much for the very kind written review you left on iTunes. Um, Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Hey, if this show's been helpful to you and you've been listening for a while, I would be so grateful if you'd take just about two minutes 
to leave a written review on iTunes. That is super helpful on helping other people uh, find the show for the community to continue to grow and for me to be able to put more resources into the show. So if that is something you're willing to do, I am very grateful. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes, and that will take you right there. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. Hey, have a great week. And I look forward to talking with many of you. And I look forward to seeing some of you on October 12th in Manhattan. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.